the best product. I've been involved in the Patagonia field testing program for a little over 20 years right now. For silent sports done in nature. That's the feeling. That's the feeling that I fell in love with with climbing. Cause no unnecessary harm. Organic cotton and recycle polyester to recycling the clothing to measuring our carbon footprint. Inspire and implement solutions to the environmental crisis. To give some love back to this river that doesn't have any. It's not getting any love. See what drives us at Patagonia.com. Oh my god. I cannot. I just. I can't handle it. <laughs> This is too much. Fear is a funny thing. We all have our weak spots and our strong points. Take, for instance, loose rock. A lot of people aren't so cool with climbing it, but I'm okay with it. When I'm in the midst of it, I don't panic. I'm uncomfortable, kind of like how you would be if you were too hot or too cold. I just want to move through it. I know it's going to end eventually. You know what I can't handle, though? I can't handle horror movies. Even the pretty tame ones like Jaws or Psycho. They freak me the f*** out. Forget about something like Friday the 13th. That is so past my threshold. Oh, thank God. Jaws. No, I gotta turn it off. I'm sorry. <laughs> I can't watch horror movies because I know something bad is about to happen. It's a suspense leading up to the moment that drives me nuts that will make me leave the room. The young co-ed walks right into the abandoned house. The high schoolers decide to make out in the cemetery. What's up with that? You just don't do that. Seriously. So I can't watch it. That kind of risky behavior kind of makes me nervous because at the very least, it's going to mean a brush with some murderous creature or ghoul. It's strange though. In the outdoor world, risky behavior doesn't seem all that risky to those of us on the inside of the circle. We call it curiosity, we call it imagination, passion, and sometimes even while all of our friends and families might be saying, really you're going to go do that? We embark on whatever endeavor it is, even though we'd be lucky if we don't end up in trouble. I'm going to take y'all back to the ciphers real quick. Today for the Halloween edition, we bring you two equally scary experiences from two places that couldn't be farther apart from one another, Kandahar and Truckee. Two tales about people following their passions right into the most terrifying moment of their lives. You had to know it was coming, right? I mean, come on. I'm Fitzka Hall, this is the Halloween episode, and you're listening to The Dirtbag Diaries. On a warm night in early June, our shuttle bus pulled up to the entry control point of the airfield, just as the base came under attack by insurgents. As we drove along the airstrip, I could hear explosions amidst the wailing sirens. We pulled alongside a sandbag-covered concrete bunker and quickly ran to its entrance. There was no room. It was already full of soldiers dressed head to waist in body armor. No worries, I thought. I'll stay outside and pull security in case any bad guys breach the wire wearing suicide vests. Our flight this night was not one anyone could book through a travel agency. 
This flight is for special troops and their attachments, which included me, an anthropologist embedded with the U.S. Green Berets, Navy SEALs, and other international special operations teams. I'd just come from near the border with Pakistan, near Tora Bora, where Osama and his gang of thugs slipped through our fingers in the high mountain passes at the start of this war nine years ago. Now I was headed south to Kandahar, the epicenter of the insurgency. After 45 minutes of waiting outside the bunker, our plane arrived. A gray C-130 taxied along the runway and stopped 150 yards away. I grabbed my bags and headed for the plane. The cargo bay was mostly empty aside from a few large boxes. A handful of jump seats cradled troops trying to doze off. Joining nine other soldiers on the floor, I looked for something to hang on to. There was nothing. Instead, I used the heels of my boots to wedge myself in between a rail on the cargo bay floor with my back pressed against the wall of the plane. 30 pounds of body armor helped to hold me in place. The cargo bay door closed and the lights were turned out. The only information my senses could decipher was the feel of a cold steel floor and the rocky motion of the plane. As my plane taxied to the runway, I sat back and soaked up the experience. With a soft grin on my face, I relished in what I was so fortunate to do. Imagine a simple kid from eastern Montana finding himself traveling a war-torn country to help the U.S. military understand the people, their culture, and working to build relationships to hopefully turn the tide of this war. My pensive mood was about to change in one terrifying instant. The plane made the final turn onto the airstrip. Engines roared to life, and two turbo propellers spun in unison. The plane and its cargo thrusted forward in a jaw-clenching burst of speed. Despite the pitch-black darkness of the cargo bay, I closed my eyes as the plane lifted from the tarmac. Suddenly, a flash of light traveling upwards burned through my eyelids. What was that? Airborne for only a few seconds, the pilot reacted instantly, banking the plane from side to side to avoid the barrage of rockets and small arms rounds. This is it, I thought. This is how it all ends for me. The pilot continued to bank the plane wildly, shooting flares from the aircraft's wings to intercept the onslaught of artillery before it brought the plane down. My heart raced as I dug my heels into the rail to keep from tumbling around the bay. I clung to my weapon to keep it from flying away as the plane dropped during each turn, then rose for a brief second, only to again drop during another hard turn. I knew there was nothing I could do to avoid what seemed inevitable. As a climber, I've had a few experiences in which I felt I was close to death. These moments, sometimes drawn out into minutes and hours on shaky runouts and scary descents, have still always seemed to exist within a boundary of which I could somewhat control the outcome where I knew I could make it through and survive if I stayed focused and got lucky. On this night in June, I knew I was on the other side of this boundary. I had pushed myself to the edge, only to find that the edge had something else far beyond my control. I was at the mercy of Taliban marksmanship and a pilot's skill to dodge bullets and rockets. Fortunately, the Taliban are poor marksmen, and our pilot's ability to navigate enemy fire proved remarkably proficient. We arrived in the dry sauna of Kandahar later that night without further incident. Music 
I've had other close encounters during my deployment. I will likely see more before I return to the utopia of security in the Pacific Northwest, but this night will likely stand out as the most terrifying. This is David Kallenbach, and this is my Halloween story. That story was recorded in God knows where Afghanistan. David is nearing the end of his time in Afghanistan. It will be good to have him home. We miss you, buddy. El Cap is waiting for you. Okay, part two. So hitchhiking. It's not all that bad, right? I mean, people do it all the time in Canada. They do it while they're abroad. But down here in the States, hitchhiking, for whatever reason, has gotten a bad rap. It's not that bad, right? Uh, Ryan Carey presents The Hitchhiker. I lift my pack and toss it over the deck railing, watching everything I own smash into the ground with a dull thud. My heart is pounding. A cold sweat runs over me. I hear a noise behind me, climb the railing, and jump. What the hell is going on here? Well, I'm running for my damn life. Through a combination of drinking and being an overly trusting kid from rural New Hampshire, I've managed to get myself into a hell of a mess. Four days after my 22nd birthday, and five days after my long-term college girlfriend broke up with me. Now, it doesn't take a math whiz to catch that she dumped my dirtbag ass the day before my birthday. And as the old joke goes, what do you call a climber without a girlfriend? Yep, that's right, homeless. But I got a really bitchin' tent, win some, lose some. So, I'm wandering around California, riding the gray dog and doing the gas station diet. When I hit Truckee, I'm stoked beautiful out, and it shouldn't be hard to hitch a ride to the Donner Summit, where I can camp and climb. Sounds wonderful, right? I pop into the tea club for a beer, or six or eight. Don't judge me, remember? I'm brokenhearted, and I just spent seven hours on a Greyhound bus from the Bay Area. As the drinks go down, I bet that someone here is going to the summit, or at least the lake. I'll just hitch a ride with one of these guys. Shooting pool and listening to punk rock, I'm quite content in this bar. Dollar beers with a shot of Old Crow for only three more. Deer heads on the wall? Hell, this place is like home. The sun will be down in about an hour, though. So with a hearty buzz and a dwindling cash supply, it's time to find a ride and get to my illegal campsite. I ask around, and this one guy who I'd been playing pool with about an hour ago says, Sure. He was like, Yeah, I can give you a ride to the summit. And I was like, Oh, whatever. It's like a ten-minute ride. Not a big deal. So I toss my pack in the bed of his truck, and off we go. Standard small talk ensues, weather, sports, etc. Then he says he has to stop at his house and do a couple of things before we continue to the summit. What the hell, it's a free ride, right? We pull up to his two-story condo. It's great here, he says. It's empty most of the year, except for busy weekends and holidays. Come on in, though. Grab your pack. I had some shit stolen out of the bed a while ago. Lifting my pack, I follow him in. The bedrooms are downstairs, with the living room and kitchen upstairs. I sit on the couch while he shuffles around, doing whatever it is he had to do. At what point did this get weird, Ryan? I guess like when I was like sitting upstairs in his living room, I'm just sitting there and he's like shuffling around and he's... 
doesn't seem like he's really doing anything in particular. He's just kind of like shuffling around, like picking things up, like papers up, setting them back down, walking around, just being kind of shifty. I was waiting like, oh, we'll see how this plays out. And then he like invited me to stay, but like kind of like insisted quite a bit, you know, like, yeah, yeah, just stay here. Just stay here. This is a little strange, but I think, yeah, why not? Sure. We have a couple more beers and the occasional shot. And my host gets strange and aggressive. He tells me how some days he just wants to kick the shit out of someone, anyone. He is sure he could hide a dead body and no one would find it. He talks a little bit and like how he's kind of like paranoid about like people breaking in. So like he has stuff around his house for protection. Like he always has like a knife on him and like I carry like an easy open one. And I'm like, oh, all right. Mine, you know, like is like a little buck knife. I have to use like two hands to open up, or like little fingernail spot. And, and the, the kicker was, he starts talking about his girlfriend and about how she's in jail. And I'm like, oh, dude, that sucks. And uh, and he's like, yeah, you know, like she's great, and you know, she's pregnant with my kid, but she's in jail. She took the rap for like a meth-related possession for me, and like I got two strikes already. And I'm like, oh my god, like strikes aren't like. I got in a bar fight. It's like a felony. Like I've been convicted of two felonies, you know, that's serious. And I was like, Oh God. And he's like, I, I gotta go downstairs for a minute. And that's when I'm like, I'm getting out. Terrified, trying to hold together. I think, how am I getting out of this? Then my host makes up some reason why I asked to go to his room. Okay. I got a moment. What to do? Hmm. I'll just sneak out the door. And so I put my backpack on and I run towards the, uh, like as he's downstairs, like I shuffle down to the stairs and I look and his bedroom door opens up. So it blocks, it blocks the front door. Like it opens out and blocks where the front door is and it's open and he's in there and I'm looking down like, no. And I see the sliding glass door and the deck. And I look at the deck and I see it and I walk out and I'm looking over the railing. It's probably like 15 feet and I'm like, oof. That's a drop. I don't know what's down there. Like it could be pavement, like concrete for all I know. And then I hear like like the door close and like I toss my pack over. And so I climb over the railing and I just jump down, like hit my pack with like such force. Like my knees hit me in the chest. I just fold up into a ball, like roll off my pack, jump to my feet, grab it. And then I just haul ass through the woods running as fast as I can, crashing through trees, like running through people's yards. And I hit the main road like Oh, I'm so scared. Like, I was shaking so bad. Like, I'm running down the road, and I see uh, Lock Levin. It's, like, this little, like, swanky, like, hotel, like, bed and breakfast, like, right on the lake. And I'm like, maybe they'll just let me, like, camp out back for the night, you know? <laughs> and so I'm, like, ringing the doorbell, pounding on the door, ringing the doorbell, pounding on the door. This woman comes out in her slippers and her robe and just looks like, what the fuck do you want? Like, you do not have money for a room. And I tell her what happened. And so she makes me a deal that if I change all the sheets with her the next morning in all the rooms that I can just have a room for the night. And so, like, it worked out. So do you, do you think there's a moral to the story? There's this quote from, uh, I read this book shortly after this ordeal because I told someone I was working with uh, about it 
and they recommended uh, even cowgirls get the blues because uh, the main character, Sissy, like she's hitchhikes all over the place. And she has this one quote about hitchhiking, like, as long as the car is moving, you're safe. <laughs> but when it stops, get out. And like, that's that should have been it, like, right there. Like, when I got out and I was by the lake, like, I should have just been like, I'm good. <laughs> Now, I have no idea if he would have actually killed me, but I do know that every part of me was saying, get out of here or you will die. Every primal instinct was yelling, bail, bail, bail. So I did, and I'm here today. Happy Halloween. Ryan Carey currently lives in Mammoth Lakes, where he coaches skiing. He's got a moped, but no car. During the winter, that means he's still hitchhiking. Thanks to everyone who participated in our Halloween contest. We got some great entries this year. Bex and I were pumped to get back and have an email box full of great short submissions, story suggestions, and scary tales. You all powered this project. Thanks for supporting us with your stories and input. You can always contact us through email at dirtbagdiaries at earthling or through Facebook. We're stoked to hear from you. Music today by Head Like a Kite, Left, featuring Moo, Gold Panda, and Tumble Down. You can download the cuts at our site, www.dirtbagdiaries.com. The diaries are brought to you by Kuat Racks, makers of a better bike rack. Check them out online at kuatracks.com. Additional support comes from New Belgium Brewing, who remind you to follow your folly. Find your favorite flavor online at newbelgium.com. And as always, a big thanks to Patagonia for all their support. I'm still figuring out how we're going to release the Tracing the Edge series as downloads to those of you who are interested. I'll keep you posted. But in the meantime, if you haven't seen that series and you're interested in finding out about it, go to Patagonia.com and look around. You'll find it. I'm Fitzcahal. You've been listening to the Dirtpack Diaries. Happy Halloween.